We are in 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 3 today. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Jesus seen risen from the dead is the topic of our text today. If you've had the opportunity to visit Israel or if you plan to visit with us in 2025 when we hope to go again, many people will talk about what a life-changing experience it is to visit the Holy Land. Now, life-changing may be overselling it just a little bit. Uh, I, I would say this, though. When you go and you see the places where these events happen, it is just such a delightful con- a confirmation of everything that you believe. Uh, I do not believe that by seeing, you will have faith. Uh, faith comes by hearing the Word of God and the Holy Spirit working in your heart. Faith is the gift of God. So you do not need to see in order to believe. But uh, when you go and when you see, it is just such a delight. To, and, and for me, it was like being in my childhood backyard and seeing things I'd forgotten about uh, because every Sunday uh, we grow up listening to these events that happen in this land. And as you see where they actually took place and the shape in which they, everything was uh, taking place, it, it, just, it just really is a blessing. So you don't have to see to believe. And in fact, seeing will not cause belief. We believe the Word of God. But in this text, as it as talks to us today, the Word of God talks about how many people saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. And so we are to read and to believe this account. And I want you to read with me in 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the record of your word. The testimony that Jesus was seen multiple times by hundreds of people. I pray, Father, that you would build our faith as we read your word today. And God, help us to rejoice in this day that we've come to celebrate, this Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would just delight in our resurrected Savior. And that, Father, you would give us confidence in facing life and death, knowing that we, like him, shall be raised. And, Lord, I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin in our outline, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are matters of first importance. As we read in verses 3 and 4, it says, For I delivered to you, Paul's talking to the Corinthians, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture and, Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. When Paul said, I delivered to you as of first importance, some people think, oh, that's the first thing that he gave to them in in order, in time. But in fact, what he is speaking of there uh, is this is of first importance. It's what we have come to call a fundamental of the faith. A fundamental is something that when you remove it from the Christian message, you no longer have a Christian message. A fundamental of the faith would be the deity of Jesus. If you're talking about a Jesus who is a created being, a brother of Satan, you do not have a Christian message. 
The death of Jesus is a fundamental. If you believe that he was swooned, he just swooned and fainted on the cross, and that he got up later and moved to Italy and whatever else, um, that's not a Christian message. If you believe that, uh, well, you know, resurrection, that's a hero myth. Uh, that, that, that he really didn't literally raise from the dead. That's just a mythological way that you honor someone you love. And there's hero myths throughout all of history. If you believe the resurrection was a hero myth, your message is not a Christian message any longer. These are matters of first importance. There are other matters in the church that are of secondary importance. Uh, the mode of baptism. Um, whether or not you believe tongues have ceased for today. Uh, things that brothers in Christ hold differently than us. But as long as they hold the fundamentals, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the fact that we denominate is a good thing. You will hear people, usually not all that involved in the church, say these denominations were created by man and they're not a good thing. I would beg to differ. Uh, you can be my brother in Christ, but if you have called together an assembly that believes a good worship service is speaking in tongues and shouting and rolling in the aisles, I would appreciate you putting a denominational tag in your title to let me know not to stop by because it just will not be compatible with my understanding of the Word of God. Um, nonetheless, you can still be my brother in Christ and I will spend eternity with you, but we do denominate over secondary issues and that's a good thing. We love over the lines, but we draw the lines. Um, this is not that. The, the death and resurrection of Jesus is a matter of first importance. It says in verse 3 that Jesus died in our, for our sins. He says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So anytime a New Testament writer speaks of the Scriptures, the New Testament not having been fully written and fully yet recognized. We are speaking of the Old Testament. So the death of Jesus is not a misunderstanding. Uh, it is not an accident. It is not a historical oops moment. It is something that was foretold in the Scriptures. And it was not an accident. It was for a purpose. He died for our sins. The idea of a dead Savior was a problem to the Corinthians. Uh, the, the, they're in the, the hotbed of philosophy and logic. And anytime you have somebody who has died, they, ha they now have a, they, they lack a major qualification for being your Savior, for being your deliverer. They've died. And, uh, and, and so this was a, a philosophical problem. In 1 Corinthians 1, earlier in this book, Paul wrote, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Why is this important? That God used the weak things of this world to shame the strong. I've met people who are just brilliant. And I mean in a class I cannot even relate to. They understand maybe biology or they understand physics at such a level that I am not only amazed, but I am profoundly convinced that I, given any amount of time, could not do what they do. I could not retain what they retain. I could not, I could not process what they process. I'm just not gifted that way. 
But the most important truths in the world are not like that. They're not out of reach to somebody with limited intellectual processing capacity. The most important truths in the world are right here, and they are profoundly simple. They are simple, they are profound, but every one of us can understand that we are sinners, that God is a God who judges for eternity, that hell is real, that Jesus died for our sins, and this is God's gift. That it's not just given to anyone. under It's given to those who place their faith in Jesus. Those who hate Jesus, those who disregard Jesus, they are not protected in him. But those who confess their sins and turn to him in faith find protection in life and fellowship with God for all of eternity. It's not out of reach. And that is important. Paul notes here a couple of times about two of the verbs that these verbs happened according to the Scriptures. Uh, he, he mentions that at the death of Jesus for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was raised a, after the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, when Paul uses the term Scripture, in most of his writing, there might be one other place in his writings, but in most of the time he uses it in the singular. And he's referring to a specific Scripture, the Scripture that says, and then he'll quote that. Here he uses it in the plural. And I believe the purpose of that is that he doesn't have just one scripture in mind. He has all of the scriptures, the direction of the whole Old Testament. You might remember in Genesis 3, the gospel was given right after mankind sinned. The gospel is is given uh, to Satan and Adam and Eve hear it. God says to Satan, her seed will crush your head and you will bruise his head. So the seed of woman would destroy our enemy, Satan, utterly. And yet in the process, there would be some kind of a wounding of him. And so right there, we have the death of Jesus. In the call of Abraham, uh, we have this promise to Abraham, in you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. That's speaking of the salvation that the seed of Abraham, the Messiah, would bring to all nations. In King David, we learn that this seed is going to reign eternally in the presence of David. And then you have scriptures like Isaiah 53, verse number 5, which I believe speaks of his death. It says in Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are Healed. He died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. I noted a moment ago that there are four key verbs here referring to uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and two of them have the phrase supporting them according to the Scriptures. The first verb is died. He died according to the Scriptures. He was buried. It doesn't mention the Scriptures there. And I think that's because the fact that he was buried is a supporting verb for his death. He was dead, dead, and therefore they buried him. And then, it, then the next verb is raised according to the scripture, uh, scriptures, and then was seen is the fourth verb that's listed four times but never according to the scriptures. So the fact that he was seen is a supporting verb to the fact that he was raised. So the two key verbs here today are that he died and that he was raised. The fact that he was buried testifies to the truth of his death. 
the actions of the, look at verse number four here, that it says that he was buried, uh, just, just simply that he was buried. The actions of the Jewish enemies of Christ witness to the fact that Jesus Christ was truly buried. We read in the historical account in the Gospels that special permission had to be granted for his tomb situation to uh, be, in, uh, be in the special tomb. Um, they also put in a contingency of guards, and it's not just two guards. If you look at the word that is there, it would represent between 12 and 20 guards guarding the tomb of Jesus. So the fact that they allowed the tomb, the fact that they are guarding the tomb so that the body doesn't get snatched away, tells you that the enemies of Jesus, the Romans, truly believe this man to be dead. We have modern-day scandals that arise. You'll see it on Drudge Report, usually referencing a Newsweek article or something like that. About once every four years, you'll see an article, new revelations about Jesus Christ and what really happened around surrounding his crucifixion. And that's where you see that time-old story that, oh, no, he actually was still alive. He married Mary Magdalene. They went off to Italy and had children, something like that. Absolutely ridiculous. And then they recycle it every four years as something new, uh, hoping to jilt you out of your faith. Whether or not Jesus swooned on the cross and, and walked away from the tomb, that wasn't the scuttlebutt in Jerusalem around his body's disappearance from the tomb. It, 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 listen to Matthew 28. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, and notice it was just some of the guard went in. Again, I, I, if you picture two guards, some of the guard is, is some one or more than one. It's more than one. Is some all or less than all? It's less than all. So we have a plurality of guards going in and giving witness and, 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 and so there were many guards involved in this. It says, and when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell, his, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day, Matthew writes, as he's writing about this. This story, as Matthew writes, he's saying, this is the story that's being spread all around Jerusalem. Now, if Matthew writes that, and someone goes to Jerusalem and say, nobody believes that. Jesus married Mary, and they're up in Italy. You see, that wasn't the scuttlebutt. And, and Matthew would look ridiculous on his face writing that in his historical context. Jesus truly died. We see in verse number four, he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. Verse four, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The verb was raised is in a tense in Greek called perfect. Now, if you studied Latin, uh, perfect tense, I think, has different functions. If you studied other language, perfect tense means different things. In Greek, perfect tense means something happened in the past that has an ongoing effect that's active today. So Jesus was raised in the past, and it's still effective today. He is risen. He is alive. How is that unique? How is that different from when Elijah resurrected the widow's son in the Old Testament? you remember that? I mean, Jesus is not the first one to come back from the dead in that sense, and yet the Bible elsewhere calls him the firstborn from the dead. How is that different? The widow's son 
was raised by Elijah from the dead, but he lived to die another day. He's not still running around Jerusalem. He did not get some miraculous ascension into heaven. Uh, he lived to die another day. Lazarus was raised from the dead, uh, he, but he lived to die another day. Eutychus was listening to Paul's preaching, and Paul uh, had gone well into the night, and he fell asleep and fell off of a balcony or a wall, and, and he was taken up as dead, and Paul laid upon him, and, and, and he came back from the dead, but Eutychus lived to die another day. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and today he is seated at the right hand of the Father. The Bible is clear. This is a unique resurrection. He lives. Now, this is according to the Scriptures. Have you ever wondered where the Scriptures talk about Jesus rising after three days in the Old Testament? And Paul is referencing multiple Scriptures. I'll take you to two. If you could go to Acts 2, which is going to quote David. Go to Acts 2, verse 25. This is how Peter sees in the writing of David the resurrection of Jesus on the third day. Acts 2.25, for David says concerning him, and now through verse 28, we have the psalm being quoted, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. David continues, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, Peter unpacks this message of David in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So when you see in verse 27, David saying, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, Peter is saying, David's body is right here with us. It saw corruption. Being therefore, verse 30, a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Peter is saying David is acting as a prophet here, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The idea of a resurrection on the third day is that absence of decay, that absence of corruption. David, whose flesh did decay, is speaking of his offspring, the Messiah. Also, we have Hosea chapter 6, verse number 2. You don't have to turn there. It's a short verse, but in context, it's Israel and Judah speaking about God working in their midst. And Hosea 6, 2 says, after two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. The resurrection of the Messiah is the life and resurrection of Israel. And it speaks of that happening on the third day. So the resurrection of Jesus is a deposit on our resurrection, on Judah's resurrection, on Israel's resurrection. His resurrection is the first fruit of all resurrections. His resurrection is anticipated in all of the scriptures. His death is anticipated. The sacrificial system pointed to the death of Jesus. His resurrection is the power of God on display par excellence in human history. 
a liberal pastor acquaintance of mine here in town when I was first a pastor. We were meeting and, and he, was, he made a comment. Uh, I forget if we were having coffee or what it was, but he just said, you know, I'm actually quite conservative. If I were pressed on the matter, I would confess that I believe in a literal resurrection from the dead for Jesus. And I was stunned at that statement. Why would you have to be pressed? Why would you not declare this from the housetops? Our Savior lives. Well, I'll tell you why. Because we live in an atheistic, naturalistic society where miracles are just simply not in vogue. They are not intellectually acceptable. And so a lot of even clergy, due to cultural pressure, will put on as if, well, you know, we're not going to talk about the miraculous because that is not uh, becoming. And we'll only declare these things if pressed. Well, in Corinthian, the, the day of Corinth, it was very similar. Uh, they had Greek dualism, which taught anything physical was evil. Your physical body is evil. You can't wait to die and shed it, and then your spirit goes free. The metaphysical is inherently good. The physical is bad. Therefore, who would want a resurrected body? So they face the same pressures we face today when clergy tell me, if pressed, I would have to admit that Jesus literally rose from the dead. Just sad. But that is where we are. So Paul opens the discussion saying, this is a matter of first importance. This is a fundamental of the faith. And then Paul invites the Corinthians, he practically invites the Corinthians to go and talk to eyewitnesses. Let's look at our second point here this morning. Jesus was seen resurrected, and Paul offers any doubting Corinthians opportunity to verify his testimony through a listing of references in verses 5 through 8. Look at verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Incidentally, we don't know anywhere in history or in the Bible where this happened, the 500 at one time. Paul, this is new information. We don't have other information about it that I'm aware of. In verse 7, then he appeared to James. Now, we already mentioned the apostles. Who is James? Is he the James, one of the apostles? Most would believe that he is talking about James, the eldest brother, the next eldest brother of Jesus. And, uh, and what a meeting that would be. Uh, James doubted all of the brothers hated Jesus. They baited him to go to Jerusalem to die the week that he did go to die. And Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but me it hates. They were at at enmity with Jesus up to the end. I I think that this meeting with James in a resurrected body is a mercy and a grace of God the Father and God the Son that he appeared to James and said, now, you need to understand some things. (laughs) I'm your Messiah. I'm your God. And you need to accept that. And, and, and praise God, in, in, in Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, when they had all entered, speaking of the early church, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So I think this text is the beginning of when the brothers started coming to Jesus that James saw his eldest brother raised from the dead, received him as his Messiah and his God, and served faithfully for the rest of his life. What a moment that that would be, huh? 
He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared as to one untimely born. I think that's a criticism that the Corinthians had of Paul. Uh, He appeared also to me. The resurrection of Jesus. The resurrected body of Jesus. It was seen. Now, I told you last week we were in Nicaragua. I met with pastors, and we talked about how to prepare sermons. One of the tasks we do, and something we do, I encourage pastors to do on Monday because it's so easy, it takes no time, and there's no pressure on Monday to get the sermon ready, if you know what I mean. I'm talking about the craft of creating, you know, this is kind of like office talk among pastors. Okay, and so the first thing you do is you identify the verbs and you create, if you're in the New Testament, didactic literature like this, you you identify the verbs and you create an outline, an outline that is not going to survive until Sunday. This is just to get your mind thinking about the text early in the week. Um, For me, I add a little step that we don't talk about down there, and that is I I do a parallel interpretation if it's a short passage like this from the Greek to the English. Now, what happens sometimes is kind of odd because the verb we've been reading here is he appeared, he appeared, he appeared. The... the, um, the, the verb is afthe, and that off in the beginning of afthe, it means he was seen. We, ha- we get the term ophthalmology from that root. So afthe, he was seen. And so I interpreted he was seen. So I'm sitting in the airport in Managua on Monday, uh, just working on my s- sermon. I had lots of time there. We were like four hours early. And so I, I started my sermon, and I just want to show you what happens when you highlight the verbs in verses 5 through 8. Uh, he was seen. He was seen. Some words about some Christians who, who uh, fell asleep. He was seen. He was seen. Does, a, does, does Paul's point all of a sudden kind of come to life a little bit for you, the way it did me sitting in the airport? I was like, uh, Paul's point is he was seen. He was seen. He was seen. He was seen. And, and most of these people are still alive and serving Jesus. And Corinthians, if you, with all of your philosophy, don't believe that, you can get on a ship and you can send some delegates over there and they can talk to people who are expending their lives over this truth. He rose again from the dead and he was seen. Our Lord lives. And that is Paul's point today. History tells us that these people went to their graves declaring this truth. Often they went to early graves because they declared this truth. I think that's important. It would be entirely different if these 500 believers and these 12 apostles became televangelists and became health and wealth prosperity preachers and lived large sharing this message and asking people for all kinds of money. And uh, that would have a whole different effect than the fact that he was seen and it destroyed their lives because they stood by the truth and the world hated them for it. The fact is, Christian, your suffering for the gospel might be one of the most affirming realities in and around your life. The fact that you are not doing this to enlarge yourself. How could they do this? How could they go to their graves declaring this truth? How could they lose their lives declaring this truth? Because he was seen. They knew, what, they, they, they knew how this ends. They, in fact, it really doesn't end. They will be resurrected. They knew this. They had seen him resurrected from the dead. And they had every confidence that their lives were in good hands. We serve a resurrected Lord. Jesus died literally. He rose from the dead literally. He lives 
and you will live eternally with him and be like him if you place your faith in Jesus. What does that look like? I'm, I'm looking mostly at people who I know to have a Christian testimony. Believers. But if you are visiting today and you're not sure exactly what a Christian is, a Christian is not someone who believes they're good enough to enter God's presence. Good enough is perfect. <laughs> it's absolutely holy. The unfallen angels, they qualify. Sons and daughters of Adam and Eve do not qualify. We all have a sin nature. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short. And I mentioned earlier, the gospel is not out of reach intellectually, and I praise God for that. But I'll tell you what, for the proud, it's out of reach. For anybody who cannot confess that I am a sinner and I have a need, I have a need that cannot be fixed by me. I need a Savior. If you're too proud for that, the gospel's out of reach. The gospel begins with confessing that we are sinners, turning from that sin toward the Savior Jesus Christ. He lived a righteous life that's imparted, imputed to us at the judgment. He died a punishing death that takes our punishment at the cross. At some point, as someone who understands this message, you need to decide for yourself that you are going to trust Jesus as your salvation. And if you're too proud to do that, if you think you've got this in your own hands and that's just asking too much of God to step in, that you want to, if you're going to stand in God's presence, you want to earn your way, you will perish in hell for all of eternity. You are proud. You are arrogant. So God calls you to trust his son, Jesus. He was seen by witnesses, converting even his brothers the Corinthians could have traveled and verified this message with eyewitnesses. You and I have the Word of God witnessing these truths to us today. Let's believe its account. Let's close in a word of prayer. As we close, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I'm going to invite you to do so today. Just spend a moment in silent prayer before I have Ben come to lead us in our closing song. Silent prayer to confess your sins, to ask Jesus Christ to save you from your sin, to let God the Father know you are trusting Jesus. Let's pray silently and then I'll close. Heavenly Father, we stand before you as human beings of weak frame this day. Lord, we are in dying bodies. We get injuries, we get diseases in this sin-cursed world. And Father, the truth of your warnings to Adam and Eve that sin would bring a curse of death on mankind is ever-present around us. Father, we also thank you that there is life in Jesus Christ that there is this one ray of hope in all the physical world that changes everything. That a dead man came back from the grave 
proving that he is your son, proving that he is our salvation, proving that we, like him, will be raised from the dead. Father, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the witness of your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, and we pray that he would apply these truths to our lives, that we would live and rest in the comfort that Jesus died for our sins and he was risen from the dead. Lord, I pray that you'd bless our celebrations today. Might we fellowship with you and fellowship in the truth of your word throughout this day. And God, carry us through this lifetime in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.